Church family, it's good to see you gathering together this morning. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you are with us that way. My name is David, and I serve as lead pastor here at Trinity, and it's my pleasure to do so. And we are in our fifth week of our summer series through the life of David. My youngest of three daughters, his name is Madeline, and she's six years old. And Maddie very often will say in our house, I have a great idea. That's her phrase. She never has good ideas or okay ideas, average ideas. All of her ideas are great. Every, anyone else in this room, you ever feel like all of your ideas are great? You got pretty great ideas? Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is, though, all of Maddie's great ideas are ways that we can serve her. <laughs> Things that we can, all of her great ideas are very advantageous to her. She's very honest, and I love her for it. We're, we're looking at a passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David, who is now king of Israel, thinks he has a great idea. He's really excited about his idea. But God actually uses this moment to actually shape David's idea about who God is. And we're going to look at that together. David has become king. Both Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. David became the king of Judah. And then there was a bunch of fighting, but eventually he became the king of Israel. And once he became king, there was more fighting, uh, both internal, having to fight off uh, some of Saul's family that was still alive, and also external, having to fight off the Philistines. But at this point, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is in a season of peace. And I want you to see what his idea is. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7, it says, Now when David the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given David rest. Okay, so David's in his house, and he's experiencing rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David's got an issue. He's like, I got this beautiful house made out of lumber, but the ark of the Lord, which represents the presence of God, is only in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So David's great idea is simply, I want to build a house for God. I want to build a place for him to dwell, for him to live, for him to rest. And God's response to David was kind of surprising. And he says two things that were true then and are true still today. And the first thing that God essentially says to David is this, I am bigger than your house. I'm bigger than your house. You know, let me just talk for a moment about the significance of David wanting to build a house for God. This would have been not a residential house, but really a temple, a place of worship. And back then, when somebody wanted to build a temple for their God, it meant two things. Number one, it was a sign of loyalty and devotion and worship. I want to do this for you. But number two, it was sort of a prayer that that God would come and dwell in that place and live in that place and specifically live with the people. So it was something that was done for those reasons. It was a place of rest. Now, we all know that there's no place like home, right? Home is the place where you're comfortable, where you're relaxed, where you can be yourself. Uh, if you ever travel, one of the things that you usually miss is your bed, right? There's no bed like your bed. There's no, there's no couch like yours. Some of you got your special recliner, like that's your place to be, your own fridge. I know some people who are like, there's no bathroom like my bathroom. I got friends that can't even go to the bathroom in public because they got to be back home to relax and go to the bathroom. Being comfortable 
comfortable. Home is a place where you put your sweats on, you put your feet up, you eat all those disgusting snacks that you won't eat in public so people don't think you're a disgusting human being, right? That's, that's home where you really are yourself, where you're comfortable, where you can rest. And right here, David wants to build for God a house. And one of the ways that we can make sense of this is to understand that one of the major themes that flows throughout all of the Bible is God's desire to dwell with his people, that God wants to be with us, that God wants to be with you. And when you look at the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, Old Testament scholars say it's actually a temple inauguration ceremony. God's not just creating a universe, he's actually building a temple, a place where he can dwell and his presence can dwell. And of course, on the seventh day of creation, what does God do? He rests. Why? Because it's his home. It's his place for his presence to dwell. And his presence dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they walk together. But then in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And there becomes a separation between the presence of God and us. How many of you are glad, though, that God didn't wash his hands of humanity at that point? He didn't give up. He said, all right, I'm going to find a new way to dwell with my people. And so when you go through scriptures, this becomes one of the main themes and one of the main ways that we make sense of what God does. He chooses a man named Abraham who eventually becomes a people, who become a nation of Israel. And God says, I want to bless the world through you. But what does he want to bless the world with? His presence, himself. And then ultimately he instructs Moses to build this Ark of the Covenant where his presence will be manifest and his presence will go with the people of Israel wherever they go in this Ark of the Covenant. And they carry this thing everywhere they went. But even though God's presence was manifest in the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence wasn't limited to the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence was everywhere. Eventually, Solomon, David's son, does build a temple for God, a place of worship. And again, God manifests his presence in the temple, but he's not limited there. Then fast forward to the New Testament, and we see God comes to literally, physically, incarnationally dwell with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. The presence of God manifests all of God in a human being, in Jesus Christ, manifests in our presence. But again, the presence of God is not just limited to the person of Jesus. God's presence wants to be everywhere. And now, what about you and me? He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within those who believe and trust in him. So that the very presence of God that used to be manifest primarily in a ark is now manifest in you. And that same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in all who believe. And when we read the end of the story, and I'm so glad we do have the end of the story, it would be hard to get through certain seasons of life if we didn't know the end of the story. But when we see the end of the story, where's God's presence? Again, in the new heavens, in the new earth, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. There's no need for the sun, it says in Revelation, because God's presence is everywhere, and we will reign and rule with him. So that's one of the main themes of Scripture. But in the midst of all this, David says, I want to provide God a physical place to dwell with his people, a house, a temple, a place to rest. And David's like, I have a good idea. It seems like a good idea. But now let's see what God says. Okay? Let's go back to the Scriptures in verse 4. It says, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet. And he said, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord. And I'm going to add my own emphasis here, but I kind of think this is how it might have sounded. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, so God's giving David a history lesson here, he says, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, 
why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's saying, have I ever asked for a house? Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. Now look at these last two sentences. And I will give you what? I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I love this. David says, God, I'm going to make you a house. And God says, not so fast. I'm going to make you a house. (laughs) Don't get confused about who is who and who brings who into rest and who can establish each other. It's interesting. David's like, I want to do this for you. And God says, I want to do this for you. And God is saying to David here, I'm bigger than your house. I will bring you into rest. God's saying, David, you're not going to give me a place to rest. You're not going to bring me into rest. I'm going to bring you into rest. I'm going to make a way for you to dwell with me again. I will do this for you. And here's what I think God is saying to David and what maybe he's saying to some of us here this morning. He's saying, I am bigger and I am greater than your plans. You know that, right? God's bigger than your plans. He's bigger than your expectations. God is so much bigger than your ability, your finite mind's ability to understand who he is and what he is doing. God is bigger. We serve a big God. Do we know what this means? A.W. Tozer wrote that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? How big is he? How great is he? We serve a big God. Now, there are some problems with serving a big God, and I want to share them with you. One of the problems with serving a big God is that you can't control a big God, can you? You don't have him on a leash. C.S. Lewis wrote these famous children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, these four children are whisked away to this magical world called Narnia. And in there they meet this white witch and these different creatures, and there's a character named Aslan. And Aslan is, is the Christ figure, really, in the story. And the children learn that Aslan is a lion. And one of the girls becomes scared. She goes, oh, I didn't realize he was a lion. I'm, I'm kind of afraid. And so they ask these other characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? And the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver kind of laugh at him and say, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? He's a lion. But he's good. The God that we serve, he's not safe the way we would like him to be safe. You know what would be safe for us? If he fits neatly into all of our preconceived ideas of who he is. If he supports all the things we support. If he fits into all our categories of what he should do and how he should act. But God is so big, he cannot be controlled. He cannot be explained. We sang earlier in the song, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. One of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith is the Trinity, God, the three persons in one. We cannot explain it. All of our futile attempts to try to explain what the Trinity is fall short because he's too big for it. He's such a big God and it presents a problem. And one of the problems is that because God is so big, he cannot be owned by any one group of people. God is not owned by any denomination. 
God is not owned by any ethnicity. God is not owned by any political party. God is not owned by any group that's been made by man. He's way too big to serve our agendas. He's way too big to fit into our man-made categories. God is so big that the prophet Isaiah says that his thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. We won't always understand. Some of you have learned in your life what it means to trust and follow God when you don't understand. Because he's too big. He's so big that he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us explanations. He doesn't owe us an easy life. He's a sovereign God. He's a great God. And he's in charge. Which sounds wonderful, except if we're honest, we would like to be in charge every now and then. But we serve a God who's big. There are dangers with serving what I would call a small God. A small God, a small God is always subject to your preferences and biases. Listen, if you serve a God who supports everything that you believe, you might be serving a small God. If you've not recently been challenged or offended by something that Scripture reveals about God, then you might be reading Scripture through the lens of having a small God. If you have a small God, then he doesn't want to fill every moment of your day or every moment of your life. He just fits neatly into Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. Or whatever. You carve out time for a small God. But a big God gets it all. We sang it this morning. You can have all of my heart. A small God doesn't get first consideration when we have to make big decisions in life and when we have to make big decisions about uh, our families and big decisions about anything or even small decisions. God doesn't get considered first. He's sort of secondary. And here's another real key indicator that the God you serve has become too small in your eyes is that you are at the center of your story and not God. God is just a peripheral, one of the peripheral characters in your story. Yeah, he's more important than a lot of the other ones. But when you realize how big God is, you realize he's the center of my story. He's the center of every story. And God's saying to David, I'm too big, I'm too great for any house that you will build for me. Now, God does allow David's son Solomon to end up building a temple for him. And God blesses that. But the point is this. God says later through his prophet Habakkuk, there's a day coming when my glory, my presence will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. How much of the sea is covered by water? How much of the ocean is covered by water? All of it. God is saying, I'm not looking to just dwell in a building. I'm looking to dwell everywhere so that my presence will be manifest and known in a way that is for my glory and for your good. I'm bigger than your house. But the second thing that he says to David here is, I'm better than your hopes. I'm better than your hopes. Have you ever had the pleasure of having your hopes and your expectations exceeded? Isn't that wonderful? You go to a restaurant for the first time, and maybe you've read some bad reviews on Yelp, and you're like, I don't know if it's going to be that good. And you bite into that big, juicy burger, and you're like, oh, man, this is so much better. Anybody else hungry? Just me? Oh, this is so much better than what I thought it would be. Maybe you watched a movie that one of your friends was like, ah, it's a terrible movie. And you watch it, you're like, wow, this is a lot better than I expected. I remember last year, my family and I, we went down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and one of the things that we did down there is we went to the Sight and Sound Theater where they put on these uh, very elaborate plays from the Bible. And people had talked it up and told me about it, and I'd, I had heard from my parents and others. But if I'm honest, I was a little skeptical. I was like, come on, how, I mean, how great can this really be? And I went and watched, and afterwards I remember being like, wow, this is even better than I thought it would be. God is saying to David, I know you have some hopes. And what was David's hope? David's hope was simply this. If I build this, you know, it's like uh, the old movie, if I build it, maybe he will come, right? 
Feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. This is kind of how David was functioning. If I build this house, God will surely dwell amongst us and be pleased with me. And God's saying to David, that's a fine hope, but I'm so much better than your hope. Because every other religion says, if you do X, Y, and Z, God will bless you. But Christianity says, because God has blessed you, regardless of what you've done, we respond by serving him. we got to get the order right. We don't serve to get the blessing. We receive the blessing, and out of gratitude and worship, we serve God. He's better than our hopes. There's, there's a few things that he says here. I want to encourage your hearts, and then we're going to finish. The first thing that he says here to David is, I will make my promises. I will keep my promises, even if you don't keep your promises. There's a part in here I want to read to us. Listen to what God says. He says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. He's talking to David. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you. He's, he's speaking of Solomon, who will come from your own body and will establish his kingdom. And he, speaking of Solomon, he shall build a house for me, for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But look at what he says in verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. God's saying, and we learn this in the New Testament where we're taught, even when we're faithless, God remains faithful to us. God says, even if you mess up and you sin, and he knew that Israel would, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it doesn't get better from here. It gets worse from here. He knew, and he said, I will discipline them, and he disciplined them. They ended up in exile. He disciplines us as well. But he says, I will never remove my steadfast love from you because I've made this promise to you. And we serve a God who, when he makes promises, he keeps his promise. And some of you need to be reminded in your hearts of promises in God's word, but also maybe promises that God has spoken to you through other believers, through spiritual gifts, that God remembers every single promise that he's spoken over your life, and he's going to bring it to pass. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. God says, I will make and keep my promises. But the second thing that God says here that I love is God says to David, I will establish you. I don't know why, but that word establish has meant a lot to me in this season. When I think of establish, God establishing us, I think of deep roots. I think of a strong foundation. I think of something or someone that's able to survive chaos and crisis and the craziness of our country and our world right now. And I bet if you're like me, there's been some times in these last few months where you've not felt very established. You felt a little bit blown around by what's going on. And God wants to say to you that he wants to establish you. Now, if your roots are in the circumstances of this world, you're never going to be established. But when your roots are in Christ and his faithfulness and his kingdom that will last forever, you can stand strong and be established even when the world around you is going crazy. And here's the wonderful thing about us trusting God to establish us. When we trust that he will establish us, you know what it does? It frees you from having to establish yourself, which is, so, which is where so much of our sin and so much of our hurt comes from, us trying to establish ourselves, prove ourselves, impress other people, be smarter than other people, be better than other people. God says, I will establish you. He's going to do it. Another thing God says is, I will provide for my people. You're not going to give me rest, David. I'm going to give you rest. 
and the rest that you're going to enter into is going to last forever. I'm better than your hopes. And then the last thing we see in this passage is this. God says to David, I'm going to dwell with you. It's great. Build me a house. Have your son build me a house. But I am, I am going to dwell with you no matter what it takes and no matter what it costs. And what did it take for God to be able to fully dwell with his people? What did it cost God for him to dwell with us? See, in the Old Testament, whenever you read prophecy or promises, there's usually what we call dual fulfillment, two fulfillments of the same promise. There's an immediate one, and then there's an ultimate one. And the immediate fulfillment of this covenant that God makes here with David is his son Solomon. He says, you're going to have an offspring that's going to come from your body, and he's going to build my house. And that's what Solomon eventually does. But there's not just an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. There's an ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. There's a greater Solomon. There's a true and better Solomon whose throne was going to be established, who also happened to be a descendant of David and who sits on the throne of David, who came not to rule on an earthly throne, but the throne of of our hearts. I want to point out to you in verse 14, this is one of the part of the covenant where he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And here we begin to get a sense that God is speaking. He's looking forward to his own son, Jesus coming to be the greater king. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. We'll hold up. Jesus never committed iniquity. We know that from the scriptures. He was tempted like you and I, but he never committed a sin. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. And look at this word. And with the stripes of the son of men. Jesus Christ committed no sin, no iniquity. But he did take the stripes of the sons of men, didn't he? He did take the rod of punishment. Why? In our place. For us. We commit iniquity. And Jesus suffers in our place. That's the kind of king we have. That's why God is so much better than our hopes. Because he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then verse 15, he goes on to say, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. But at the cross, in a sense, the steadfast love of the Father did depart from Jesus. As he experienced hell, sin, judgment, the wrath of God in our place. Jesus committed no sin but he was disciplined in our place. He lost the steadfast love of the Father for us. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, uh, the, the gospel uh, writer says that Jesus will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him, look at this, the throne of his father, David. Second Samuel 7 is about Solomon and Israel. It's also about Jesus. He has the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus' kingdom will reign forever and ever. He's bigger than what we think. He's better than what we think, and he's a promise-keeping God. And Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So one of the ways that we can understand the gospel is this. Listen, and I'll, I'll close. God keeps his promises to us. Why? Because Jesus kept our promises for us. God keeps his promises to us. I'll never remove my steadfast love from you. Because Jesus, he kept all of our promises for us. And this is the hope that we have. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what the mountains are in your life. God's bigger. He's greater. He's able. 
I don't know what's distracting you from the goodness of God, but Jesus is better. You can fill in the rest of that sentence. It doesn't matter what you say next. Jesus is better. He satisfies our souls. He strengthens our hearts. He's a promise-keeping God, and his kingdom will reign forever. Let's pray together.